Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. What a joy it is to be back with you. For those of you gathered in the auditorium this morning, those of you watching online, always a joy for Jeannie and me to be with you. Our hearts are always drawn closer to our Father and our God through worshiping with you. Our hearts and lives are always enriched by the fellowship with many of you that we know and love. And uh, it is just a joy to preach, to deliver the Word of God to you. A preacher can tell when people love the Word of God, and that is certainly the case here. It's always a joy to be with you, to worship, to fellowship, to minister the Word of God. One of the most iconic images in American history is the Uncle Sam Wants You image. It was first placed on posters in World War I to recruit soldiers into the military. It was used again throughout the duration of World War II and has since become one of those iconic images, Uncle Sam wants you. Well, last week, we celebrated the death and resurrection of Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ proves that God wants you. The death and resurrection of Christ shows that he loves you so much and he cares about you so deeply that he wants you to be a part of his family and he wants you beyond that to be a part of his work. That's what the death and resurrection of Christ shows. But many people, when they hear that, respond something like this, God wants me? It was wonderful to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus last week. And as you've already seen, the death and resurrection of Christ is not the end. The resurrection was not the end of of everything. The death of Christ was not the end of his life. The resurrection showed that there is more to follow. There is more to come. What happened with Jesus on Good Friday and even on Resurrection Sunday was not the end of even his work on this earth. The resurrection was not a period at the end of a sentence. It was a comma in the middle of the sentence, introducing then a new thought, a new work of God, his work through his church. You'll see more about that in coming weeks, I understand, in this series on the beginning of what God did through his church on this earth. But before launching that ministry, Between Jesus' resurrection and the launching of his work through his church, Jesus met with several people. And he seems to have met with these people with the express purpose of assuring them, as he spends time with them, that he wants them specifically to be a part of his work on this earth through his church. We're going to be introduced this morning to three of those people that Jesus spent time with. All three of them, Jesus seems to have targeted specifically so that they might realize he wants them. In spite of themselves, he wants them to be a part of his work. I believe those three individuals represent three kinds of people who struggle with the idea that God really wants me and that God really wants me or could use me to be a part of his work. And so as we look at these three people, I think we will see they represent the big idea of the message today, and it's this, God really wants you to be a part of his family and his work through his church. 
Now, please don't think in terms of an old uncle with a bony finger pointing in your face and a scowl on his face. Think instead of a loving father with outreached arms, with a big smile on his face, welcoming you into his family and encouraging you that he wants you to be a part of his work. God really wants you to be a part of his family and his work through his church. The first person that we encounter today is Thomas, one of the 12 disciples. Thomas's story that we're going to look at this morning is recorded for us in John chapter 20. Now, I believe that Thomas represents the skeptic, the skeptic. Let's look at these verses. Follow along with me as I read in John chapter 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. That's the first meeting Jesus had with them on the day of the resurrection. Thomas was not there. Verse 25 says, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I feel, see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas would not believe without proof. As we read, Jesus had appeared to the disciples on the eve of the resurrection, but Thomas was not there. And you may wonder why. Why was he not there? Well, I, I don't think Thomas was a coward. In fact, earlier in the Gospel of John, when Jesus had told the disciples he was going to go to Bethany to minister to Lazarus who had died, to raise him from the dead, minister to Mary and Martha, his sisters, and the disciples were discouraging him, saying, it's dangerous to be anywhere near Jerusalem right now. The Pharisees are out to get you. Thomas's response was this. Look at it in John chapter 11 and verse 16. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I don't think Thomas was a coward. He was ready to die with Jesus should that be necessary. So why was Thomas not there when Jesus appeared on the evening of the resurrection? Well, you know, we all mourn and grieve and deal with, with emotional difficulty differently. Maybe he just needed to be alone. At least give him credit for his honesty. When he was back with the disciples, he says, I, I, I hear what you're telling me, but I can't believe it unless I see it for myself. At least he's honest. And at least give him credit for the fact that he's still with the disciples a week after the resurrection. He hasn't abandoned them. He's still with them. Thomas simply would not believe without proof. And I love how Jesus confirms himself, gives Thomas the proof that he's looking for. He comes and appears again to the disciples. This seems to be just for Thomas's benefit. And he gives him all of the evidence he asked for. Everything Thomas asked for, Jesus 
offered. His words were gentle. They were direct. They were convicting. And all Thomas could do was bow himself before Christ and say, my Lord and my God. You know, there are many who are skeptics when it comes to the faith. Maybe you're one of those skeptics. Maybe someone invited you to church, and you're not sure what you really believe about this whole business of Christianity or about God and Christ and the Bible and the resurrection and the miracles and all those things. Maybe you're watching online, and you're just kind of checking this out. You're not really sure what to believe. Maybe you're one of those skeptics. Maybe you have some really honest questions, like, if God really is good and if he's all-powerful, why is there so much evil? in the world? What about all the scientific evidence for evolution? How do you handle that? And really, when it comes down to it, aren't all religions basically the same, you may be thinking? What about, what about the fact that you say there's only one way to heaven and you guys are the ones that have it? Really? That seems awful intolerant and narrow to me. Maybe that's your question. Or maybe your questions are more personal. Where was God when I needed him? I prayed, and my father still abandoned our family. I prayed and asked God to help, but my child still died. Maybe your questions are very deeply rooted in very hard experiences that you've been through. I can assure you, my friend, you are not the first skeptic. Thomas was not even the first skeptic. When Jesus was first calling his disciples in John chapter 1, he called a man by the name of Philip. And Philip went out and saw a friend named Nathanael and said to Nathanael, Come, we've, we've found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. You know what Nathanael's response was? Huh, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Nazareth did have a pretty rotten reputation in the first century. So Nathanael was the first skeptic among the disciples. I love what Philip said to him. Philip simply said, come and see. Come and see. Jesus will prove himself to you, and you will see who he really is. Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He was a skeptic. I want him to tell his own story to you this morning, so I'm going to read part of his testimony and summarize other parts of it. He says, skepticism is part of my DNA. That's probably why I ended up combining the study of law and journalism to become the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, a career in which I relentlessly pursued hard facts in my investigations. And that's undoubtedly why I later was attracted to a thorough examination of the evidence, whether it proved to be positive or negative, as a way to probe the legitimacy of the Christian faith. A spiritual cynic, I became an atheist in high school, he says. To me, the mere concept of an all-loving, all-knowing, all-spiritual, all-powerful creator of the universe was so absurd on the surface, it didn't even warrant serious consideration. I believe that God didn't create people, but that people created God out of their own fear of death and their desire to live forever in a utopia they called heaven. 
I married an agnostic named Leslie. Several years later, she came to me with the worst news I could possibly imagine. And he goes on to, to tell the story. She had become a believer. Somebody had invited her to a church where the gospel was preached, and she had trusted Christ as her Savior. And Lee Strobel thought, well, she's going to turn out to be some kind of religious fanatic, and we're probably looking at a divorce. But instead, he saw an amazing transformation in her life, even how she related to him and to the children. How she responded to circumstances was different, and he was intrigued by that. So when she invited him to go to church with her, he went. He was still not convinced, but it did cause him to say, I am going to investigate this thing of Christianity. So he started a two-year investigation of Christianity. He says he read and interviewed atheists and Christians, scientists and theologians. He studied archaeology, history, and world religions. He focused on science, diving deep into cosmology and physics and biology. But he says this, and I quote again, however, the pivotal issue for me was the resurrection of Jesus. Anyone can claim to be the Son of God, as Jesus clearly did. The question was whether Jesus could back up that assertion by miraculously returning from the dead. One by one, the facts built a convincing and compelling case. Jesus' death by crucifixion is as certain as anything in the ancient world. The accounts of his resurrection are too early to be the product of legendary development. Even the enemies of Jesus conceded that his tomb was empty on Easter morning, and the eyewitness encounters with the risen Jesus cannot be explained away as mere hallucinations or wishful thinking. He says, all of this just scratches the surface of what I uncovered in my nearly two-year investigation. Frankly, I was completely surprised by the depth and breadth of the case for Christianity. And as someone trained in journalism and law, I had no choice but to respond to the facts. And so like Thomas, he bowed his heart and life to his Lord and his God and received Christ as his Savior. He went on to write books like The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ, The Case for Easter, and nine other books in the Case for series all of which defend the Christian faith that he so adamantly opposed as a skeptic. Are you a skeptic? I would invite you, like Philip did Nathaniel, like Jesus did Thomas, like God did with Lee Strobel, come and see. Come and see. You say, well, that's all good, John. That sounds great. But I've been a believer for years, and I still have doubts. Well, the fact is, many believers also have doubts. Maybe you're a, a Christian. You know that you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, but you doubt his power. Is he really able to take care of this situation in my life? You're not sure he is. Maybe you doubt his love. Could he really love me after what I've done? Maybe you doubt his answers to prayer. Will he really answer prayer like you say he will? Maybe you doubt his promises of the assurance of eternal life, and you constantly struggle with the matter of security or assurance in your heart. 
You're just not sure you can really believe that once you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you have eternal life, which means it can never end. And you struggle with doubts about that. Or maybe you have other questions. I would invite you, come and see. Come and see. You see, doubt flourishes in isolation. So like Thomas, gather with God's people and ask your honest questions. As a skeptic, an unbeliever who is a skeptic or a Christian who is a doubter, ask your questions. Like Thomas, be willing to let him prove himself to you. Come and see. You will see that faith is more than just answered questions. Faith is a relationship with a real person who loved you so much that he was willing to give his life on the cross as payment for your sins and came forth victorious from the grave to show that he really was who he said he was. You'll find that a relationship with that person through faith can be yours. Come and see. Like Thomas, experience Christ's love and his grace. Recognize that he loves you and humble yourself before him as your Lord, your God. You may never understand all the complexities of the universe. Who does? Jeannie and I love science, and Jeannie and I were watching a NOVA program the other night about a physicist who spent decades uh, studying the presence of and whether or not neutrinos actually existed and had mass. And so these small particles that are emanated from the sun and are in all of creation, they suspected they're trying to trace and find out if they're really there. At the end of a long series of investigations and decades of research by different physicists, they came to the conclusion they do exist, they are real, we've been able to find them. But something at the end of that program grabbed my attention. The, the lead physicist in that program, representing physicists from all over the world, said this, our model of how the universe works helps us to understand about 5% of the universe. The other 95% we have no clue about. Now, if one of the leading physicists in the world says that, don't you ever expect, I should never expect to understand all the complexities of the universe, but I can know for sure that there is one who died for me, rose from the dead, and I can have a personal relationship with him through faith. I can know that. Come and see if you are a skeptic. The second person that we see this morning that Jesus interacted with following the resurrection, actually two people, were two Emmaus disciples. And I'm going to refer to them this morning as those who represent the insignificant. Now, notice the word insignificant is in quotation marks, and the reason for that is I don't believe anyone's insignificant. God doesn't see anyone as insignificant, I'm convinced, from the Bible. But there are many who feel themselves to be insignificant. The story of these two disciples is found in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we're not going to read the whole story. We don't have time for that. But I want to read at least the introduction to the story in verses 13 to 16. Follow along on the screen. Now that same day, two of them, same day as the, the resurrection, by the way, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked, 
and discussed those things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, what happens next is that Jesus engages them in conversation. It's really an interesting, fascinating passage to me. They're walking back home to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. It's the day of the resurrection. They're totally confused about what's going on. And all of a sudden, there's this stranger that kind of comes in, maybe from a side road, joins them and starts walking with them. They, they are kept from recognizing who he is. And so the, the conversation that Jesus engages them in is absolutely fascinating, really humorous. Jesus says, hey, wh- what are you guys talking about? And, and they stop and drop their heads. They are so disheartened. And finally, one of them, who's named Cleopas, lifts his head long enough to say, are you the only person who doesn't understand what's happened in Jerusalem in these last few days? And amazingly, Jesus says, what things? Can you believe that? What things? And then he just listens as they pour out their hearts. And they talk about how their hope in Jesus as the Messiah had been crushed when their religious leaders gave him over to the Romans to be crucified. And now there are Ladies who are reporting that the tomb is empty and others have seen the empty tomb, but we don't know where Jesus is. We don't know what's happened. They're totally confused. And he just listens as they pour out their hearts. He wants to know what things are troubling them. And then he opens their hearts. He opens their hearts to the Old Testament and he goes through the whole Old Testament law and prophets and describes for them that the Old Testament taught that the Messiah had to suffer all of these things, and then come forth from the grave. By that time, they're back in Emmaus, and those two disciples, probably husband and wife, invite Jesus into their home to share a meal. Actually, Jesus had pretended like he was going to walk right on before they invited him. Whoa, what they would have missed if they hadn't invited him for dinner. They fix the meal, they eat the meal, and the Bible says that it was as Jesus broke the bread that suddenly they were allowed to recognize who he was. And when they recognized it was Jesus, immediately vanished from their sight. What an amazing story. But you know what really amazes me about this story? We know so little about these people. We know one of the names, Cleopas. Some believe that it's the same person mentioned as Clopas in John 19, whose wife Mary was actually at the cross with some other women when Jesus died. Maybe that's true. We don't know. But two disciples, relatively unknown, certainly in the broader scheme of things, they've never done anything outstanding. We know of nothing they did following this encounter. They surely seem to be insignificant. And yet Jesus spent time with them on the day of the resurrection. Possibly hours. Think of We don't know how long it would take them to walk seven miles to from Jerusalem to Emmaus, we don't know at what point Jesus joined them, but it was long enough to go through the whole Old Testament and point out how everything pointed to him. Then he sat with them in their home while they fixed a meal, they ate the meal. This is possibly several hours on the day of his resurrection. Just think about that. 
Jesus is fresh from the glory of the resurrection, and you would think he would be joining the angels in heaven for a great celebration around the throne with Jesus as the center of praise and worship for accomplishing the plan of God. You would think that's where he would be. You would think he would be with all of his followers showing that he had come forth from the grave, proving who he was, or you would think he would at least be with the 11 remaining disciples, which he will do later in the day. But first, he spends quite possibly several hours with two people that we really know nothing about. That amazes me. When we think of Jesus on Resurrection Day, we think of him as the mighty God who has won a great victory over death. We think of him as the sovereign conqueror who has defeated the devil. We think of him as the triumphant savior who has defeated the grave and come forth from the grave. We think of him as the glorified Lord who can appear through closed doors to meet with people. But he also shows himself to be the compassionate friend who is willing to walk with two relatively unknown people and spend time hearing their hearts, understanding their anguish, and filling their desperate hearts with the Word of God. What an amazing scene that is, even disguising himself so that they will feel free to fully pour out all their anguish. One of the most amazing stories in the Bible, I believe. Do you feel insignificant? Maybe because of perceived lack of ability or lack of education or lack of financial standing or lack of social connections. Maybe you feel like you just don't have much to offer. Maybe because of past hurts or disappointments or even failures, you feel like you just don't really measure up. How could God really want you? How could God really ever use you? Maybe because of past abuse or even present abuse, in whatever form that may take, you feel absolutely worthless. How could God even care about me? How could God ever want me, much less use me in his work on this earth My friend, I want to do as Jesus did with these two unknown, insignificant disciples. I want to assure you, it is all about him, not us. It's all about him, not us. What did Jesus do with these disciples? Some kind of self-help message that built them up and made them feel, oh, I really am worth something. I really am significant, aren't I? I really can do this or that or the other. I really am important. That's not at all what he did. This was no self-help message that he gave them. This was an exposition of the Old Testament scriptures that prophesied about Jesus, the Messiah. This is taking the Word of God and embedding it in the hearts and minds of people. Why? Because it's not about us. It's all about Him. They themselves would say, didn't our hearts burn within us as He opened the Scriptures to us? Not as He made us feel good about ourselves. That's not the point. But our hearts burned within us with a recognition of who Jesus is, who the Messiah was, 
what the Bible says about him. That's how God deals with us to show us. It's not about who we are. It's not about what we've been through. It's not about how we failed. It's not about how insignificant we feel about ourselves. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. I've mentioned my family here before. I grew up in a wonderful family, godly parents. I don't think I've mentioned the fact of the the tremendous suffering that I experienced growing up in in my family. I had four sisters. No brothers, just four sisters. But you know, all five of us went to the same Bible college to train for ministry. Two of my sisters married pastors who are still in the ministry today, have been serving the Lord 50 years plus. Two others of my sisters married faithful, godly men who wherever they have lived, they as a team have been faithful servants in their local churches. I got to thinking the other day, the aggregate accumulation of serving Christ among us five siblings is somewhere around 250 years. You know where it all started? My dad who worked a management position in, at that time, the Norfolk Western Railroad, actually started with the Old Virginian Railroad, worked with a man by the name of Basil Selvey, a very quiet, unassuming, shy man who just kept patiently witnessing to my dad and led my dad to Christ. My dad was a part, along with our whole family, of a church that did not believe the Bible or preach the Bible there in Princeton and He didn't know what to do. He didn't know where to go. He didn't even know of any Bible-believing churches in the area, so he did nothing. And enter enter another insignificant, unknown person who asked my mother to go sing at a revival meeting that was being held out in the country in a little church. My mother was well-known for singing in that area. She had 14 pins for 14 perfect years of attendance in that church where she never heard the Bible. So she went to sing. And she heard a man by the name of Jimmy Jones preach the gospel. And she said, I've never heard anything like that before. She didn't trust Christ at that time. There was a lot of spiritual pride in her life about who she was and what an upstanding church member she was. But she did persuade my dad, let's go out to that church and hear that preacher. So they went. She quickly came to know the Lord as her Savior And all five of us kids in that first year were in a VBS, I'll never forget, faithful VBS teacher, Henrietta Wade, who led me to Christ on June the 9th, 1961. Probably nobody outside family or a few close friends have ever heard of Henrietta Wade or Basil Selvey. I don't even know the name of them. One of the person who asked my mother to go sing at that revival meeting. But there's a sense in which God used those insignificant people to begin a work in a family that would result in, to this point, about 250 years of aggregate service for Christ. Don't ever think God can't use you, my friend. Don't ever think, I'm too insignificant. I don't matter, really, do I, in the large scheme of things? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. 
God loves you and he wants you to be a part of his family. He wants you to be a part of his work. Don't ever think you're too insignificant. These two on the road to Emmaus prove that. But then there's our third person that Jesus met with following the resurrection. His name is Peter, and Peter represents the failure. His story is described for us in John 21, but before we read his story, I just want to remind you that Peter had miserably failed Jesus. And you know what? All four of the Gospels record it. If you study the Gospels, you'll recognize that it's very rare for all four of the Gospels to record the same account. In fact, the only miracle of Jesus that's found in all four of the Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. But Peter's failure, it gets in all of them. He failed the Lord miserably. Peter had boasted to Jesus shortly before his death, although all the other disciples forsake you, I will never forsake you. And on the night before Jesus died in the upper room, Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet. He had told them one of them would betray him. They're stunned. He told them he was going away, and they couldn't follow him. And Peter says, why can't we follow you now? I'd be willing to give my life for you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, really, Peter, really? Before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. I think that must have stunned Peter, startled Peter. And yet, you know the story. They go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested. They go through a mockery of a trial. All the disciples flee. Peter eventually finds his way back to the courtyard where Jesus is being tried within eyesight of him, but not close enough to be identified with him. And he's warming himself around a fire. And three separate occasions, somebody says to him, you're, you're one of his disciples, right? And three separate times, Peter says, no, I'm not one of them. Finally, the third time, Luke says he actually called down curses probably asking for God to judge him if he was lying when he said, I don't even know the man. And immediately after that third denial, the rooster crowed. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus looked at Peter. Evidently, they were within eye contact of each other, their eyes locked. Peter saw the look in his Savior's face. I don't think it was a look of anger, maybe disappointment, but surely pity, mercy, love. And Peter turned and fled out where he could be alone and wept bitterly. He had failed his Savior, his Lord. Even though Peter has seen Jesus two, maybe three times since the resurrection, I don't think he felt comfortable around Jesus. And so finally he decides he's going to do something else. He, he can't forget about his foolish boasting his clear denials. He can't forget about the crowing of the rooster that's still running through his mind. It's in his ears, and he can't get rid of that sound. He can't get rid of the look of Jesus as Jesus watches him, looks at him. He's overwhelmed by a sense of failure. It's impossible to deny what he's done, and he's thinking, am I disqualified? Can I ever be restored? Well, he's about to find out. John 21, right after Jesus had appeared to them the second time, Peter decides he's going to go fishing. Takes seven of the other disciples with him. They go to the Sea of Galilee. They fish all night, catch nothing. They see a stranger on the shore. And the stranger says, have you caught anything? No. Put your net over on the right side of the boat. 
They do, and they catch a huge load of fish. All of a sudden, they must have all recognized, at least John and Peter did, this is exactly what happened when Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John to be his disciples early in his ministry. So John says, it's the Lord. And Peter doesn't wait for the boat. He grabs his cloak, dives into the water, does a 100-meter freestyle Olympic record to the shore, beats the boat to the shore, gets out dripping wet, and he stands before Jesus. And Jesus says, let's get some of the fish and let's have some breakfast. And then after breakfast, look at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus confronted Peter with his failure. Time does not allow us to deal with all the intricacies of this, but gathered around the fire, asking, do you love me more than these other disciples when Peter had said, they all forsake you, I'll never do it. All of that, calling him Simon rather than Peter, asking him three times, do you love me, reminding him of the three times he had denied him. Peter was brought face to face with his failure I'm sure his stomach churned, his heart raced, his cheek burned, his eyes filled with tears. You know, sometimes God is mercifully brutal because we need to recognize our failure. We need to admit our sin. We need to see what we've done and how sinful it is. And Peter's honest. When Jesus asks, do you love me, Jesus uses a word for sacrificing everything for me. Peter can't come to that level, so he uses a different word. I have a friendship kind of love for you. The third time Jesus used that word, that's why it hurt Peter so much. But what Peter's saying is, Lord, there's no more boasting in me. There's no more resolve that I am going to be the greatest and the best, even though everybody else, there's none of that left, Lord. And when he came face to face with his sin and admitted it, Jesus said, I've still got work for you to do, Peter. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. You know what, friend? We are all failures in need of restoration. Now, that may sound harsh. It may sound harsh. But we are all failures in need of restoration. You trace the lives of some of the greatest men in the Bible, Abraham. God used him as the example of the man of faith in the New Testament. But twice... The Bible records how he lied and deceived someone about who his wife was, that she was really just his sister. And the second time he did it, it says that was his custom. They had an agreement where whenever they traveled, that's what they would do. That's the man of faith in God's sight who failed so miserably. Moses, God calls the meekest man in all the earth. But if you read the careful record of his life, four times the Bible describes that his anger erupted violently in public. Meekest man in all the earth, God says. 
David, God calls him the man after my own heart. But we all know about his sin of immorality, the cover-up, the terrible, awful year of deceit. And others, read Hebrews 11. There are so many others just like that. Maybe you have failed God in some of the ways they did. Deception, blazing anger, immorality, undisciplined behavior, fear, doubt. My friend, if you will be honest about your failure as Jesus confronts you, he will forgive you, he will restore you, and you know what? Even better than that, you can rejoice in the truth that he will not define your life by your failure but by the overall direction of your life, as he did with Abraham, Moses, and David. So what am I saying this morning? I'm saying this. Don't let your doubts define you. Let Christ fill you with resurrection life and confidence. Don't let your feeling of insignificance define you. Let Christ fill you with resurrection hope that is based on who he is, not who you are. Don't let your failure define you. Let Christ fill you with resurrection forgiveness and restoration. Why do I try to impress that on your hearts this morning? It's because of this. God really wants you to be a part of his family and his work through his church. He really does. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your grace, your steadfast love, your mercy and kindness. We give you praise for who you are. Thank you. May everyone hearing your word today respond with faith in you, whether they may be a skeptic, a doubter, whether they may be one who feels insignificant or one who has failed you, may they come back to you and realize you love them. You want them to be a part of your family and of your work on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.